Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Well, before we start, programme regular David Bellis has something to get off his chest that he's very sensitive about. So I'll let him tell you all about it in the final few minutes of this half-hour programme. But first, a few weeks ago, Robert Neal, the author of two books on treaty ports in China, took me with his friend Nick Kitto to Possession Point, the place where the British landed and first took Hong Kong as a colony in January 1941. This week he takes the story on as he tells me about controversial opium trading and a customs blockade that lasted 20 years and the scourge of piracy. A few weeks ago uh, when we last spoke, I was with you up at Possession Point, which is the point I believe was the first uh, landing of the British in Hong Kong. That was the unofficial landing on the 25th of January 1841, then the following day the official raising of the flag. And that got me to thinking, what happened next? Well, basically, how long have you got? Because what happened next is is an awful lot of uh, history about Hong Kong. But one particular area which people always associate with the British in Hong Kong, unfortunately, is opium. And it was, rightly or wrongly, probably more wrongly than rightly, it was a big business. And it was very important in Hong Kong's early history, uh, the fact that Hong Kong became a major opium centre. Later in 1841, there was the first land sale. Captain Elliot, who wasn't in fact the governor, he was, strictly he was called the administrator of Hong Kong, Uh, he organised the land sale because he thought a lot of uh, businessmen, British, Americans, Parsi, Indians, would be interested and all the sites offered on the waterfront at Queen's Road were snapped up immediately. Shortly afterwards, uh, an instruction came from London saying, whatever you do, don't sell any land. And he said, "Uh, sorry, done it, and it was very successful. Why didn't they want any land sold? Hong Kong wasn't considered to be a particularly successful or attractive addition to the empire. There were some questions on whether it would be retained. Some people considered the taking of Hong Kong to be uh, a negotiating ploy, like holding it to ransom. We've got a piece of your territory, so you're going to agree to our demands, uh, as they were speaking to China. Others thought, well, it would be useful maybe as... um, as a support base for the newly opened treaty ports up the coast. The treaty ports were, were tiny little enclaves, but if Hong Kong was a British place, it was a much more secure place to service the treaty ports. And yet a third view said, well, Hong Kong might well develop into a major commercial centre in its own right. And that was certainly Henry Pottinger's view. He said within six months it's going to be of global importance. Well, it took more than six so of months. Of course, Pottinger was a, a governor. Pottinger was the first governor who, uh, after Captain Elliot was um, replaced, Pottinger became the first official governor. And he said that Hong Kong within six months will become a major commercial emporium. He was right, apart from the timing. It took a bit longer than six months. But there were these three points of view, that that we should give it back. Uh, We didn't really want it anyway, compared with, well, it would be a useful base for serving other bits of uh, British interest in China. And the third one being it will become a major uh, commercial centre in its own right. So was Elliot replaced winningly? Elliot uh, had a bit of a hard time. He went on, I think, to be governor of Texas. Yeehaw! Which uh, (laughs) must have made a man out of him. But um, he had a bit of bad press because um, he was criticised for not taking enough. You know, we'd beaten China in a war and all he got was this funny little island with with nary a house upon it, which is the famous uh, supposed quote at the time from Palmerston. Um, So he got into a little bit of trouble, and he was considered to not be the right man to take things forward. Pottinger came in, all guns blazing, well, not all guns blazing, literally, that had happened already, but he was full of of beans, full of gusto, and he took over as the first governor. So, yeah, uh, Elliot left, unfortunately, under a bit of a cloud. Interestingly, so did um, Commissioner Lin, his arch 
enemy in the opium war crisis because Lim was criticised for giving away too much, so he was banished. Elliot was criticised for getting too little, and he was banished. You just can't win sometimes. So you go on to the next stage where people have, uh, you know, you've, st- you've got the land that is beginning to uh, be sold, so the startings of Victoria. The startings of Victoria, indeed, the city of Victoria. Um, Elliot declared Hong Kong to be a free port, meaning duty-free, no duty. And Pottinger uh, affirmed that, reaffirmed that when he took over. So Hong Kong was a free port right from the beginning. There's no duties. But one of the whole purposes of fighting the war with China was to establish a clearly understood system of duty charging and collection. Because before the conflict duty was, well, how much have you got? How much do you want? And, oh, today the price has gone up. And nobody really knew what the rates of duty were going to be on their business. But one of the purposes of the war was to establish clearly defined and followed duty systems. So is this very early on that all of this is established? Oh, yes, right from the very beginning. Tax. Yeah, tax, yes. <laughs> What's well, two things certain about life? One's, e- one's death and one's tax, is that it? But um, yes, right at the very beginning, it was declared to be a free port. Uh, no duties were to be applied here. But one of the purposes of fighting the war was to clarify the duty system in China. So Hong Kong, the, the boundaries of Hong Kong, as it were, then within those boundaries, there was no duty. As soon as you get outside the, that boundary, you're in Chinese waters or on the Chinese mainland. And of course, there was duty. So did everybody come to Hong Kong for their cigarettes and brandy? Just like, um, <laughs> just like now, I guess, yes. They weren't limited to 19 cigarettes in the packet either. They, <laughs> they, they did uh, much bigger business than that. And opium uh, and salt and a few other things, principally opium and salt, became major smuggling items. Opium and salt. Opium and salt. Opium, because it's a, it was a high-cost item and uh, addictive, so therefore it became hugely popular. Salt, because it's a very much a, a basic of, 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 of dietary needs, and uh, the Chinese had a salt um, uh, a monopoly on, on, uh, on salt. So salt smuggling. It sounds strange, salt smuggling. I think it's great. So a salt monopoly. So what, what more salt was made in China than elsewhere, or...? It was brought from other places for, for distribution in China. Can you imagine it today? You've got some white powder there. Uh, yeah, it's salt. Oh, yes. <laughs> but in those days, it was. But opium was, was the principal one. And because uh, there was no duty in Hong Kong, opium could be brought into Hong Kong, but obviously not for the local market in those quantities. It then left Hong Kong to go up the coast into China. And so the opium was brought in from India? Brought in from India uh, to Hong Kong. And then it was uh, a lot of it was smuggled out up the coast. And as soon as it went out of the territory of Hong Kong, it became a dutiable item under the arrangements which had been fought for. It was still illegal, actually, to, to trade in, in, in opium. It was only in 1858, the Treaty of Tientsin, that opium was created as a, a legal trading commodity. But then... Uh, the payback was an enormous rate of official duty was applied to opium. So even though it became legal, the duty was huge, so the smuggling increased after 1858. With the smuggling, are there sort of newspaper records of people getting caught or just they were aware that there was a huge amount of contraband? Oh, a bit of both, yes, uh, people getting caught. Um, It was legal in 1858. In 1867, the Guangdong Customs Authority established... Uh, little customs bases along the coast near to Hong Kong, and they based uh, ships there to try and catch junks who were escaping from Hong Kong 
uh, with smuggled items, and they were charging duty on those. And by the following year, 1868, it became what Hong Kong um, merchants referred to as a fiscal blockade of the colony, because big ships, the, the foreign-owned ships, of course, they were going to treaty ports, they were under the proper customs system. Local junks, of which there were thousands, were not under anybody's supervision or control. And each one that left Hong Kong, maybe on legitimate business as well, found itself uh, at risk of being stopped by a customs cruiser and searched, and um, sometimes more than searched. Uh, the uh, customs collection people used threats of violence and sometimes actual violence to try and get their... Uh, their due desserts and also a bit more than their due desserts in the form of squeeze which was always possible, you know, you're carrying opium okay, what's it worth to let you go, sort of thing So the customs officials were being bribed? They were, yes, they were they, they saw a great opportunity for making a bit of money for themselves but the, 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 the biggest thing in Hong Kong was, was this fiscal blockade that so many aspects of legitimate trade were, were being interrupted by the Chinese customs trying to stop the illegitimate trade and there was a bit of an impasse Robert Hart, Sir Robert Hart who was head of the China Maritime Customs was asked to intervene and he said well I can't because what you've got here is Chinese authorities taxing Chinese merchants in Chinese waters what can I do? And the Foreign Office in London agreed and said, well, yeah, there's nothing we can do. Uh, and so this fiscal blockade um, went on for quite some time. It was about 10 years later that the Chi Fu Convention of 1876, which was settlement of some other dispute, uh, thrown into that pot, was an agreement that mm, we should try and do something about this because it's not satisfactory. But it was another 10 years before something was done. So this fiscal blockade lasted for almost, almost 20 years. And in 1886, there was what's called the Opium Agreement, whereby Hong Kong actually agreed to control the import and export of opium. Not charge duty on it, because it was still a duty-free port, but to control it. All the opium had to come to one place, and it was counted and accounted for. So how was the opium being transported at that point? I mean, what would it have looked like? It was, it was sticky balls, uh, about the size of a cannonball, uh, and it would be packed into wooden cases coming out of, uh, out of India. And it would be transported by big ships from India, principally to Hong Kong, but other places as well, and then transferred onto smaller ships and run up the coast, either fast foreign sailing ships or more typically local junks, who would take small quantities hidden under the the deck and uh, pass them on to their friends up the coast. And in Hong Kong, these would have been, so the opium would have been smoked in, in opium dens. Yes, it would have. In fact, the the smoking of opium wasn't declared fully illegal until 1945. There are all sorts of efforts to, well, let's reduce it a bit each year. But I think it's only 1945 when it was actually declared purely and simply to be illegal to to use opium in Hong Kong. But until then, yes, there were opium dens of, of people lying around smoking this stuff and getting high. In a long pipe? In a long pipe. In fact... It's called paraphernalia. I don't know what the legal (laughs) definition of paraphernalia is, but there is a sign on a little park in Wan Chai, one of these little sort of urban concrete parks. There's a big board that says, no radios, no skating, no music, no this, no smoking, no eating, no drinking, and there's a space at the bottom. They thought, hmm, why no no paraphernalia? (laughs) So there is a sign in Wan Chai saying, no paraphernalia, but that was the term generally used for all the bits and pieces that an, an opium smoker 
needed the pipe, a little bowl, uh, a little thing to put the flame in to bubble the stuff. I've never used it, by the way, so I'm only going on what I've read and seen in books. But yes, there was a lot of uh, bits and pieces involved in having a, a pipe of opium. So, as you say, Robert Hart, the head of the Chinese Maritime Customs, was unable to help with this situation, with this fiscal blockade. I mean, how did it manifest? I mean, does that mean that you had lots and lots of ships in, in Hong Kong's harbour or...? Oh, there's always lots and lots of ships in Hong Kong's harbour, yes. Um, but what the uh, Hong Kong businessmen were objecting to, and I, I guess quite rightly, is their legitimate trade. Uh, things come in big ships to Hong Kong, and they go into little ships to go up and down the coast, and that legitimate trade was being interfered with because the customs uh, cruisers, how could they know at a glance that this, this junk is legal, that one is illegal? One compromise that Robert Hart did do was to place a foreign um, customs officer, because it was a foreign-managed customs service, a foreigner, on each customs cruiser to ensure fair play, because the assumption was if there's a British chap there, of course, there'll be no violence and no squeeze. I think largely he was right, because the customs um, machine was run as a very efficient and very upright body of people. How long did this fiscal blockade go on for? About 20 years. Oh, wow, really? Yes, about 20 years. Uh, the first 10 years, it was a problem, of course, until this Chifu Agreement of 1876 agreed to do something. But it took another 10 years to actually do anything. <laughs> and it was a very, very frustrating period. You can see in newspapers references to the fiscal blockade and people writing to the paper that it should be stopped and we should do something to, to stop it. So well, that makes filibustering in LegCo look quite, quite efficient. Yes, that just takes 20 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But this agreement in 86, 1886 was an interesting thing because by that agreement, all imports of opium into Hong Kong were controlled and recorded and accounted for. Whereas before, being a free port, there's no... One, one, sorry to, to sidetrack a little bit. One frustrating thing for the historian is there's not much in the way of official trade figures for Hong Kong in those days because there was no duty so there's no need to record things unless you happen to be an inbred statistician. Uh, but people had better things to do. But in the 1886 agreement, um, the uh, opium was uh, brought into one central point. It was recorded and accounted for. And issues of opium were also recorded and accounted for from that central point. And there was a government official created called the Opium Farmer, which sounds wonderful. You can imagine him out in the New Territories and sort of with his plants and so on but no it was farming in in terms of like farming out things the government opium farmer was the official who was in charge of the opium but initially he thought what I've got that job yay and he was starting smuggling into China as well until he was caught and uh, dismissed and uh, the system became proper eventually but it was only about 1890 before um, the, the system sort of worked properly and fairly for all concerned in order to get this custom system rolling, I mean, you know, what kind of staff were you just, uh, you know, a couple of compradors? How did it work? A bit more than a couple of compradors. It, it, was, it was always a problem because similar to today or maybe similar to coming up to 97, imagine uh, China in 1996, for instance, said, well, we're going to take over soon. So can we have uh, the, the PLA garrison there, you know, just to... Of course, Britain would have said not on your life. I don't think it was even suggested. But what China was wanting was to have a custom house in Hong Kong so that departing ships could do all their customs clearance here and they'll sail out of Hong Kong into Chinese waters with all the right papers instead of 
uh, risking being caught as smugglers. China wanted its own custom house in Hong Kong, so all the formalities could be done before the ships left Hong Kong. But the, the British were very sensitive about that. It's a foreign body operating a taxing authority in this duty-free port. No. Eventually a custom house was set up in Hong Kong. Uh, there was a big one in Kowloon in, uh, in the walled city and, and very recently in the Kai Tak um, redevelopment some parts of the, the structure or the, the stone jetty going out to the sea have been revealed. But a, a custom house was set up in Kowloon with a few other supporting branches around the place. Um, it's interesting, it wasn't really recognised by the Hong Kong government. It's a classic cr compromise that, well, if we pretend it's not there, <laughs> you, can, you can be there. And this thing was enormous. You see a couple of compradors. In 1891, I've got the figures here, the Kowloon Custom House employed 67 foreign staff and 700 Chinese staff to process uh, what needed to be processed. It was a big operation. There was a while when the Commissioner of Customs, who was very often an Englishman, certainly in Hong Kong he would have been an Englishman, even though working for the Chinese government, wanted to live like senior Englishmen did. He wanted a house on the peak. And the feeling among some people in Hong Kong, the British in Hong Kong, was this damn chap works for the Chinese government. He's not one of us, but then he is one of us. It was a very difficult position for the, the foreigners in the customs service to some extent. But things sorted themselves out. Now, in these early days of smuggling, in the same way as you'd have triads or mafia, did you have any pirates sort of controlling any of the smuggling? Yes, yes. Um, smuggling pirates tend to go together anywhere in the world, and, and Hong Kong was, was no exception. Um, you think pirates, Captain Kidd and all that, sort of Blackbeard and, and Pirates of the Caribbean, which is uh, one of my favourite movies, but <laughs> pirates were a real thing here. You think, well, pirates, it, it's out of, out of kids' comics and stuff, but it was jolly serious. Um, and it was relatively recently still a problem. I say relatively recently. It's not a 19th century issue of pilots, pirates in uh, sailing boats and that sort of thing. There's an account in May 1926 of a pirate attack on the West River where the local representative of the Asiatic Petroleum Company, the forerunner of Shell in, in uh, China, was killed by pirates uh, who boarded his boat. And Where's the West River? The West River is the one that goes um, west from Canton through Guangdong Province and into Guangxi. Uh, there were a couple of treaty ports along there, Wuchao and Nanning, for instance. Even more recently than that, in 1935, there was a Butterfield and Swire steamer called the SS Tong Chao that was uh, leaving on a routine voyage from Shanghai to Chifu, taking 70 British schoolchildren uh, back to school uh, at the end of their winter holidays. And 24 hours after it should have arrived, it hadn't, and uh, search parties went out. It turned out that the pirates had captured this ship, repainted the funnel, put two white stripes on the funnel and a big red dot and called it the Taomaru instead of the Tung Chao, and they brought it south. And, of course, people were expecting it to go north, from Shanghai. It came south. It took quite a long time, three or four days, to find it. There was a huge um, RAF and uh, Royal Navy exercise to find it. They eventually found it in Bias Bay, which, which is what is now Dyer Bay. When the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy approached, the pirates disappeared onto the coast uh, and weren't found. Uh, but the ship was found to have been substantially looted of anything lootable. The senior Russian guard on the ship was killed and one of the engineers, a foreign engineer on the ship, uh, was severely wounded by the pirates. But all the 70 boys, you can imagine them, must have had a field day. Yay, pirates! But it was quite serious and caused a hell of a shock in the, in the newspapers at the time. 
No, that is, uh, yes, quite quite a, imagine just having your boat taken over like that. Um, I mean, of course, we've had modern examples now in recent years in areas off the coast of Somalia. And, of course, in those days, with, with communication, uh, you, you would have been, you know, in the communication lag, you'd have been quite vulnerable. Indeed. This this ship, the, the Tung Chao, it was only 24 hours after it should have been there and wasn't responding to radio messages that somebody thought, we well, better go and look for it. 24 hours and it's a ship full of school kids. Um, so, yes, communication w- was much more primitive then. You say Somalia and stuff, that, that's a, a military problem now with the navies of the world, including China, coming together to, um, to try and protect uh, foreign shipping in that area. But there's a lovely example I've got here of, of pirates and, and the use of Spitfires in Hong Kong. <laughs> The use of Spitfires. Spitfires, you know, that sort of thing. Spitfire, I I love planes from the Second World War period, and Spitfire, of course, is an iconic British fighter. They first came to Hong Kong in 1945. There was a squadron based at Kai Tak. Uh, But then in early 1946, there was um, a request for help from sailing uh, commercial junks in Peng Chau. They were being attacked by pirates in Peng Chau. And the combined forces of the RAF and the Royal Navy went out to help. And it's been reported that these Spitfires were strafing the uh, pirate junks in Ping Chau. Now, you've been to Ping Chau. I've been to Ping Chau. Next time you go, imagine just coming over the, the horizon, little squadron of Spitfires, guns blazing. <laughs> it's, it's serious stuff, but I just find it very romantic. There was a Spitfire remained after they'd been uh, taken out of service. One remained in Hong Kong. And in fact, until 1989, it was kept in a hangar somewhere. I saw it in 89 when it was uh, then shipped off to the Imperial War Museum at Duxford, where it still stands uh, as the Hong Kong Spitfire. Just a nice little remembrance. So, but they literally just went over to Ping Chau and just started strafing the coast? Strafing the junks. It was, it was difficult. One account I've seen said they couldn't open fire because there were too many other mm. non-pirate ships around. Another account I've seen said, yeah, because they strafed uh, the junks, the, the, the junks uh, disappeared. It, at nightfall, uh, the junks just literally disappeared and the pirates weren't captured. So off to Mers Bay? Off to Mers Bay, off, off to a little inlet somewhere and uh, looking at the Spitfires in frustration, trying to find them. To what uh, time were the Spitfires used? Uh, In Hong Kong, they were used... I I think the RAF base at Kai Tak uh, was still using Spitfires operationally in 1951. Operationally, that means it was part of the Royal Air Force's um, strength, and it was an official part of the RAF, and the Spitfires were there until 1951, long after they'd been retired from the rest of the Royal Air Force. Uh, but those Spitfires were donated by the Royal Air Force to the Hong Kong Auxiliary Air Force, which is like the volunteers, uh, and they were sent up to the newly constructed um, air base at Sekong, which is just five miles from the Chinese border. And Spitfires were used uh, by the, um, the volunteers, the Auxiliary Air Force, for a number of years thereafter. As far as I've seen, the, the last time the Spitfire was used in action was 1956 uh, in uh, Israeli-Egyptian conflict. So that's 10 years after the pirates here and a good 16 years after they uh, achieved their glory in the Battle of Britain. Um, The Spitfire I mentioned that was kept in Hong Kong in a hangar, every year on Battle of Britain Day, uh, the Spitfire was brought out to, uh, to Central and it was put on the grass next to the Cenotaph on display. You can't even walk there now. But until certainly the 1960s, you could park your aeroplane on there. (laughs) My thanks to Robert Neal, the author of China's Foreign Places, the Foreign Presence in China in the Treaty Port Era, 1840 to 1943.
Now then, David Bellis of the history website Grulo.com lives in a place with a bit of a rude name, so we'd like to clear that up by explaining who it's named after. Off you go, David. We're sitting outside where I live, and I want to use this chance to put something straight on the record for all the residents. You obviously feel very strongly about this. Yes. Have you got any indigestion? <laughs> a bit of wind? <laughs> Excuse me. Well, it's a lovely place to live, but there's the name. It's called the Belchers, and it, it sounds like you have to audition to live there, doesn't it? <laughs> but no, actually, the Belchers is carrying on a, a long tradition. This is the third building on the site with that name, so... Let's follow its history back and see if we can find out where the name came from. So the current one, The Belchers, opened up in about 2000, all quite new. Before that, there was another residential building on the site called Belchers Gardens. It must have been a lovely place to live. There's a little winding road ran up the hill and uh, low-rise buildings on either side. If you went to visit, here's a picture, you couldn't help but notice this. It's a a 10-inch diameter, 10-inch fire, 10-inch shells, a great big British artillery gun. So how did they get to have that in their front garden? Well, before Belcher's Gardens, this was the site of Belcher's Battery, built in the 1880s. And the spur of land here, which gives you the lovely views, if you're building a residential site, also means you've got this great view over the harbour, so perfect spot to put your guns if you're defending the entrance to the harbour. Where's the harbour from here? The harbour is well behind all those buildings now but of course (laughs) at that time it would have had a lovely view so we'd have been right on the seafront here yes we're just next to Belcher Street so there's that name again and Belcher Street marks the old shoreline but almost as soon as it was built there was a little reclamation in front there so the the coastline was pushed out so where does Belcher's Battery get its name and then you'd think well probably from Belcher Street but no Belcher Street was also built 1880s however before Um, The buildings were here, and we were on a lovely little bay. It was called Belcher's Bay. And if we follow back through the maps, we can get back to 1845 maps and see Belcher's Bay there. So I think that's... Now we're on to something. So Belcher's Bay, not named after a something, but a someone. Edward Belcher, an officer in the Royal Navy, and a surveyor. So he made the first survey of the harbour here. And I guess one of the perks of the job of being a surveyor is you get to pop your name on the map now and again. So that's where it comes from. Would you like a great big cannon in your garden? <laughs> I'd like a garden to start with. <laughs> We're in Hong Kong after all. So yes, Edward Belcher uh, was doing the first surveys here in Hong Kong. He was also here at the time when uh, the British first arrived at Possession Point in 1841. Have you managed to find uh, there's sort of diaries written by him? There's a, a nice Wikipedia page about him. <laughs> that's the, the lazy way to find out about him. So I hadn't investigated him further than that. He had an interesting career, if you read through. He went on to get involved in a big expedition, I think it was to the Arctic, trying to rescue some other Navy ships that had got caught in the ice. Is that right? And it didn't go well. He ended up, I think he set off with five ships and came back with one, something like that. So apparently if you lose a ship under your command, you have to go through a court-martial. So he, he wasn't thrown out of the Navy afterwards, but I think he was never quite, you know, it, it, it didn't help his career. Has that had an impact on you living at the Belchers? I, I don't toss and turn thinking about the injustice to Mr Belcher, no, no, I have to say. <laughs> so here we are at the Belchers. 
just on the cusp of uh, Kennedy Town. So that's very interesting, yes, to find out. I mean, as you say, so many places in Hong Kong, of course, you know, you've got both the Chinese and the English names, but uh, often are named after someone. So it's it's interesting to find out who that someone was. But that's extraordinary when you think 19th century having to do uh, an expedition to the Arctic is, oh, wow, you know, can you imagine? No, you didn't have your Gore-Tex or your thermal thermal gloves then. I don't know how they, how they survived. David Bellis there of history website, gruelo.com. My thanks also to Robert Neal, the author of China's Foreign Places, the foreign presence in China in the Treaty Port era. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.